May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Some parables are enigmatic. They leave us with as many questions as answers. The parable of the dishonest manager in Luke 16, with its exhortation to make friends by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into eternal homes. Or the parable of the persistent widow and the unjust judge in Luke 18, with its perplexing comparison between the judge slow to provide justice and God, who we are told will grant justice quickly to them. A promise which perplexingly underscores the way in which we in a world filled with so much greed and wickedness often do experience God as more like the unjust judge, staying frustratingly silent and refusing to rule against the evil all around us. Other parables, however, we tend to read more straightforwardly with clear and concise conclusions and exhortations that seem easily graspable. The parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, or the rich man who builds bigger barns in Luke 12, or the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, all challenge both our assumptions about God and the way we ought to live, but they seem fairly clear and comprehensible. Whether or not that is in fact the case about those parables, it seems to me that the parable of the Good Samaritan is another one of those parables that we appear to, 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 to treat as if it has a consensus about its meaning. Love knows no boundaries. To follow Jesus, to love as Jesus loves, we must ignore the sectarian lines which inevitably shape human societies. More often than not, we take this parable simply as an illustrative account of agape, the Greek word most often used in the New Testament to describe the selfless love of Christ and of Christ's followers. Of course, it would be difficult to read the parable of the Good Samaritan without arriving at a conclusion like that. The Samaritan, an outsider to Israel at this point in time, shows mercy to a Judean after two leaders in the Judean community have failed to do so. Jesus calls us to love others as the Samaritan loves, loved the beaten Judean, as this is the way Jesus himself was. But for all the power of this ethical exhortation and the profound difficulty of actually living that way, I think to leave it there is to miss the biggest and most challenging implication of this parable an aspect of it that makes it more enigmatic than it might seem. A parable that calls for ongoing discernment and interpretation over the course of a lifetime, if we are to ever grasp its true meaning. Because in the parable of the Good Samaritan, I don't think Jesus is simply asking us to love across sectarian lines, though of course he is doing that. I think he's asking us to learn how to love across sectarian lines which I think is to say that Jesus here is calling us to recognize that we might encounter the spirit of Jesus himself in the lives and actions of those who do not know him, in the places we least expect to encounter him. To see this more clearly, I think it will help if we put this parable in context. So in the chapter just before this, Luke 9, we're confronted again and again with the question of Jesus's identity and what it means for those who follow him. Chapter begins with Jesus sending out the 12 into the surrounding villages to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Immediately following this, 
Luke has included a rather strange and seemingly disconnected scene, cutting to Herod, who is perplexed by the identity of Jesus. John, I beheaded, he says, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And then Luke simply adds, and he tried to see him. And he tried to see him. That seems to me to be about as good a subtitle for Luke chapters nine and 10 as any. For the rest of the chapter narrates Jesus, the bread of heaven, the fisher of men, feeding the 5,000 with bread and fish. We find Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, an accurate account, shortly followed by the transfiguration and Peter's obvious misunderstanding about what or who he is witnessing. Peter knows Jesus is the Messiah, but he doesn't yet know what that means. There's more to say, more to see. The disciples have a debate about greatness, a debate which underscores just how little they yet understand about who Jesus is and what it means to be great like him. Jesus pulls a little child next to him and rebukes the disciples. True greatness, Christ-like greatness, Jesus explained, is evidenced in welcoming and embracing the least of these, in being the least of these. For it is in the little children, and if we read Matthew 25 alongside this, in the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the incarcerated, that Jesus tells us we will meet him. A bit like Herod, the disciples tried to see him. Though in their case, they actually tried, actually following him, actually sitting at his feet, even as they apparently remained perplexed. Indeed, immediately after this debate, Jesus tells his disciples they will encounter him in those who do not follow with us, as is the case with the man casting out demons in Jesus's name, but who apparently has no other connection with Jesus or his followers. How and why this man is invoking the name of Jesus, we are given no clues. All we know is that Jesus commands his disciples not to interfere. Again, they tried to see him, but remained perplexed. Then, and from here I promise we'll move back to the gospel passage I'm supposed to be preaching on this morning, Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem and begins the journey to what we know will end in that strange admixture of tragedy, the crucifixion, and triumph, the resurrection. And the first stop along the way is apparently a Samaritan village. Now, it's important to remember that the Samaritans are, from the Judean perspective at that time, not exactly foreigners or Gentiles, but certainly not Jews. They reject the hegemony of the temple in Jerusalem, opting instead to offer sacrifices on Mount Gerizim. They have their own Torah, similar but distinct from the one used in Judea. Samaritans are schismatics, and their continued presence and proximity would likely have been a source of discomfort for many Judeans. So it is strange that when Jesus and his disciples set out at long last for Jerusalem, they do so by way of Samaria. Joel Green, in his exquisite commentary on Luke, goes so far as to say that, quote, perhaps the most notable feature of Luke's account of Jesus's journey to Jerusalem is that Jesus and his entourage did not altogether bypass the region of the Samaritans by taking the circuitous but preferred route of Galileans making pilgrimage to Jerusalem through Transjordan. Instead, they actually journeyed into Samaritan territory. 
I'll come back to this in a bit, but I want to underscore the significance that Green places on the importance of this unconventional excursion of Jesus and his followers into Samaritan territory on their journey to Jerusalem. Why it happens that the Samaritans come to reject Jesus and his followers is not entirely clear. Reading verse 53, they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Green sees a connection between this scene and the scene in Luke 4, where Jesus is rejected by the people of Nazareth because they could not accept his understanding and embodiment of the divine purpose. But whatever the reason, James and John appealed to Jesus to let them, quote, command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, echoing what Elijah did to the representatives of Ahaziah, king of Samaria, in 2 Kings 1. But just as Jesus prevented his disciples from interfering with the man doing good works in Jesus's name, so too does he castigate them from seeking vengeance against those who reject Jesus. The fact that it is James and John who ask this of Jesus, two of the three who were present uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, is surely significant, demonstrating that although they, of all people, should now have a good idea of who Jesus is, there is still much about him they do not understand. By the end of Luke 9, a spotlight has been shown on the question of Jesus's identity. What does it mean to call him Messiah? How can someone like the healer do works in the name of Jesus without following Jesus or even knowing him directly? What is going on when a person or people reject him as the Samaritan village does? And how are we who seek to welcome Jesus to respond to those who do not? How can we continue trying to see Jesus without falling into the same pit of perplexity? And as these questions are ringing in our ears, Luke has Jesus tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. A lawyer stands up to test Jesus, asking him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus's response is startling in its specificity. What does the Torah say? What do you read there? Or in other translations, how do you read it? Quoting Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18, the lawyer simply answers, you shall love the Lord God, you should love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, it appears the lawyer comes in for a bit of criticism from Luke here, as he is described as wanting to justify himself by asking a question that might be designed to catch Jesus up. And who is my neighbor? But I think that if you pay attention to Jesus's response, it becomes clear that the lawyer, perhaps in spite of himself, has in fact asked a crucial question. Because I think that what is being pointed out in Luke 9 and what becomes unavoidably clear in Luke 10 is that the question, who is my neighbor and who is Jesus are significantly, if mysteriously, intertwined. And there are three components to understanding the relationship between Jesus, between, sorry, understanding the relationship between knowing and loving our neighbors and knowing and loving Jesus that I'd like to focus on in the remainder of my time. The first is scripture. It seems to me that there are important parallels between the parable of the Good Samaritan 
and the Sermon on the Plain, as it's found in Luke. Indeed, for all the attention the parable of the Samaritan gets for its emphasis on the universal import of God's love and our love for each other as we abide in God's love. Jesus had already commanded the crowds, saying, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Here, and especially in the blessings and woes, Jesus is describing his way of life, the way of life to which we are called, the way of life in the kingdom that has and is to come in dialogue with scripture, but also through the lens of his own life and ministry. Jesus is the poor, the hungry, the weeping, the hated, the excluded, the reviled, the defamed. Through the lens of his own life, he is transforming notions in Deuteronomy 28 about the signs of blessing that comes with faithfulness to the Lord, expanding the horizons of love beyond the foreigner as enjoined in Leviticus to include those who actively wish him and there in us harm. Here in Luke 10, I think we find something similar. The lawyer asks Jesus how he might inherit eternal life. And Jesus asks him to quote scripture. So doing, Jesus effectively gives him a high five and says, see you later. Here, it is the lawyer who apparently finds the answer in scripture inadequate and who prompts Jesus to explain. And it is only here that Jesus shifts from scripture to parable. And I think that's worth pointing out. The primacy of scripture here is unambiguously affirmed by Jesus. Today, perhaps as ever, we would all do well to meditate on the centrality of scripture in our lives, to find practices and communities that can foster our awareness and understanding of God's work. What do you read there is a question I think we could all ask ourselves more often. So if you're not already a member of a Bible study or one of our small groups, please see me or Paul after the service or drop one of us an email. We'd be happy to connect you. But we still have the parable. And like the Sermon on the Plain, I think here Jesus is inviting us to read scripture with him in view. And this brings me to the second component of the connection between understanding who Jesus is, how we are to love him, and how we are called to know and love our neighbors in that light. Second, Jesus here points to the connection between knowing and doing. For it turns out that affirming the primacy and sufficiency of God's word in scripture as a source of answers to the most important questions we can ask is not to say that all we can do is repeat those words. They're not mantras or abstract ideals. Do this and you will live, Jesus tells the lawyer, not read this and you will live, or even believe this and you will live. In Luke, Jesus is constantly underlining the connection between understanding and acting. Figs are not gathered from thorns, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush, he says in Luke 6. There is an ineradicable connection between how we live and what we believe, a connection that might not simply be reduced to first getting the right beliefs and then trusting that they will compel us to action. Recall, the lawyer asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? Which might also be read as implying the question, who isn't my neighbor? 
Who can I ignore, forget, not concern myself with? Jesus' answer in the parable, however, ends with him asking the lawyer a distinctly different question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor? Being a neighbor is not a static quality, but a way of life. Mr. Rogers was right to offer the same invitation at the start of every show. Won't you be my neighbor? Let his invitation be ours. In order to understand who our neighbor is, we must first begin by loving others as our neighbor, following the Samaritan by tending their wounds, physical or emotional, helping them get to a place of safety and confirming our ongoing concern for their well-being. And this brings me to the third and final aspect of uh, what I see is understanding the connection between knowing who Jesus is, how we are to love him, and how we are called to know and love our neighbors in that light. This third aspect is letting our neighbors teach us how to love. For the most shocking part of this parable is not simply that it suggests that we are called to love those different from us, those who are foreign or even those who we might view as enemies. The most shocking part is that it is a Samaritan who makes sense of what the lawyer quoted from scripture. An enemy or foreigner who doesn't even share the same scripture, but who reveals to us the meaning of that scripture all the same, who shows us what it means to truly love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. I called that the most shocking part, but actually, I'd like to close with an even more shocking thing. I mentioned earlier that Luke makes a point of noting that Jesus and his followers both traveled through Samaria on their way to Jerusalem, a route which was not the standard for most Jews by any means. We also saw that although the Samaritans reject Jesus, he rebukes his disciples when they seek retribution, though he doesn't say why. Indeed, somewhat confusingly, he goes on soon thereafter to rebuke several other unrepentant cities, all of which are interestingly in Galilee. I think what's going on here is that the parable of the Good Samaritan is referring back to the start of Jesus's journey through Samaritan territory en route to Jerusalem. That is, having just been told that Jesus traveled amongst the Samaritans, having just been told that he was rejected by those very same Samaritans. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is asking us to imagine encountering him there among a people who do not know him, who are perhaps even actively hostile to him. For Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is, is present in ways that confound us in our intelligence. Where or in whom? we encounter the presence of the spirit of Jesus is up to Jesus. So when we talk about agape and love of neighbor, I think we tend to think of it as serving others. And no doubt I for one could do much more of that. But there I think is a danger in conceiving of love of neighbor on those terms alone. As it sets up the neighbor as an object upon which we exert our own efforts. It is for us, followers of the living God, to do the loving. But what if Jesus is asking us to transform, to amplify our understanding of what it means to love our neighbors, so that to love our neighbor is now also 
to see Jesus in our neighbor, or at least to trust that Jesus might reveal himself to us in the lives and actions of those who do not know him, of those who might even have rejected him. What if Jesus is asking us here to consider the possibility that loving our neighbor, who might be our enemy, might involve learning how to love from that neighbor as someone in whom Jesus might reveal himself, no matter what our expectations might be? I wonder, have you ever had that experience? Have you ever been surprised by Jesus, seeing him where by all rights he shouldn't be? It's disorienting. It can even be upsetting, but it can also be so exhilarating. I've got a friend from high school who is a staunch atheist to the extent that my simply having faith bothered him. He would pick fights about it. He would make snide remarks, everything he could do to let me know just how silly he thought what I believed in was. And we ended up having to come to an implicit agreement to avoid the topic of faith altogether to preserve the peace. And he lived his way, his life in ways that, while not overtly immoral, were certainly an acknowledged distance from the way Jesus calls us to live. So one day I called him up on the phone just to chat. And he told me now wasn't a good time. He'd recently moved to Missoula, Montana from Jackson Hole. And had been shocked at the size of the homeless population there. <clears throat> but instead of simply feeling shocked and moving on or the more proactive approaches of writing a letter to the editor of the local newspaper or even volunteering at a soup kitchen, something like that. He simply began inviting homeless men to use his bathroom, to shower, to shave, to clean themselves up. His apartment became something of a public restroom for the homeless population in the area. And as he was telling me this over the phone, I realized I had failed to love my friend when I ceased hoping to encounter Jesus in or with him. But here, as he was humbly describing his simple act of compassion, I felt overwhelmed by the presence of God even as I knew that my friend did not. Learning to love, loving to learn from those who are enemies or from those who do not or are actively hostile, do not know or are actively hostile to Jesus. Or even more challenging, perhaps, from those who claim they do know and love him, yet seem actively hostile to him all the same. I'd be hard pressed to think of a challenge more apt for those living in our time and in our society. It's something in our political climate that feels not just difficult, but perhaps nefarious, as if we might be platforming or giving legitimacy to those with whom we might believe are intent on destructive and unjust ends. But it is crucial to point out that for all the power of the parable of the Good Samaritan, it does not end in an affirmation of Samaritanism. Though it isn't necessarily opposed to it, Discerning the presence of Jesus in the lives and actions of those who do not know him is not the same thing as discerning the presence of Jesus in their theology or ideology. The Samaritan isn't depicted as an anonymous Judean, much less as an anonymous Christian, but he is depicted as a true neighbor, as someone who in this instance knows how to love as Jesus himself loves. And to see that, to learn from it, to love 
a person who perhaps understands and navigates the world in ways very different from us, as both someone to whom we might give and from whom we might receive, is not a wholesale affirmation of their beliefs, their aspirations, their way of life. We can, indeed, we must still disagree with and sometimes even fight against the projects of our neighbors if we feel so called. But to do that alongside or within the hope of encountering Jesus, of learning how to love from, lo from the loving presence of Jesus himself in a place or person we least expect to encounter him. 